Dr. Soder's office. This is the third time you've canceled. Now, you have to have that root canal. A sore foot has nothing to do with your mouth. Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And today we have a special guest star, Jess Banks, who is uh, both involved in the role-playing game industry and a social justice paladin. Jess, welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, yeah, we're uh, always excited to have uh, an additional voice for our, um, our our discussion of The Rockford Files, uh, as the show itself contains multitudes in particular, we're excited to talk to you about this episode because uh, this is one of the most on-the-nose Rockford Files issue episodes about a social justice issue uh, of the time. So, uh, but maybe before we get into the episode, uh, Jess, could you tell us um, a little bit about your relationship with the Rockford Files? Uh why you're with us today. Yeah. So um, I like talking about interesting things. I remember, <laughs> this is what I remember. I remember the opening sequence. Yeah. Nobody in my household or my grandparents, anybody really watched the show. But I remember, I remember catching bits and pieces of it uh, at various points in my, in my childhood. So I was born at late four. So it's one of those shows. I wasn't as enraptured with it as I was with Emergency. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that was a big one for me when I was that age. Um, and uh, I don't know why, but high drama. Yeah. And so I, I don't have a ton of experience. And I certainly haven't seen an episode uh, in full for maybe a couple decades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was this was coming back and um, and figuring out sort of the the places and the people who sort of make up the landscape for the show. Well, that's exciting for me because I think Epi and I, we are so immersed in the Rockford files at this point uh, that having a fresh pair of eyes to discuss with um, hopefully will reveal some things that maybe we take for granted or haven't noticed. Yeah. Can I ask what got you guys into this project? Yeah, the, the 200 a day project. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was watching Rewatching the Rockford Files uh, and tweeting about it, I guess. Well, I guess Nathan has a better idea what what, what I was doing at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you were you were tweeting about it. This was a couple of years ago. Now, back in the good old days when Rockford Files was on Netflix. Yeah. Oh, yes. You were tweeting about it and talking about what great writing it had. Right. Uh, and I was looking for a new show to watch, so I started watching it. I'd never seen it before, and I started watching it because Epi was talking about it, and I trust what epi has to say about storytelling and i just was totally enraptured and then um my last podcast project which was a design games podcast that i did with will Heinmarch for a while came to its natural end i was looking for a new podcast to do because i really liked doing that so i approached epi with the idea of hey there's so much good stuff about storytelling and about how to put narratives together that also applies to games do you want to be a nerd with me about this show? And also we can pull some, some useful info out of it maybe for people in our audience. And uh, it's been uh, 15 months, maybe 15 or 16. Not so long that we talk about, we we still talk about it like a newborn, but uh, (laughs) it's shocking. I am still kind of surprised that we're doing it right. Like (laughs) I'm enjoying it quite a bit. And uh, to get a little bit honest with this, 
the timing was perfect because I needed James Gardner to soothe me every so often over the, <laughs> these past couple that of years. That is very true. Yes, yes. Because we started, our first episodes went up like in January of yeah. 2017. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody something then. Yeah, it was it was a dark time in a lot of ways, and having something to look forward to that we that was exciting um, and fun, uh, in addition to the soothing presence of uh, Mr. Garner, was was pretty strong. I feel that <laughs> the thing I had to look forward to is that I managed to get my Bitch Planet non-compliant tattoo <laughs> scheduled for the week of the inauguration. Nice. nice. God damned if I go into this administration without a signal of, of uh, resistance. <laughs> so, And I was involved with it for some time after, so it really did ease my first couple of months there. So, Nice. I, I respect that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a strong move. <laughs> Yeah. And I think also speaking of having fresh eyes, I mean, you know, if anyone is listening to this that has come to the podcast in the last eight months, maybe probably right. haven't heard that story because uh, we talked about it on the first episode and we talked about it on a special episode we did at some point. But yeah, we definitely are so in it that we don't think too much about people coming to it fresh. So uh, to the project. So right. good question. Thank you for asking. Thank you for answering. Just on the fresh eyes thing. This is good, too, because I do know the fact that we generally our audience not the audience for the podcast but the audience that nathan and i have uh in the gaming world there's a lot of people out there who never bothered to watch the rockford files that are watching it now because we do uh so it's we've spread the good word it's good to have somebody every so often involved that uh can speak for them oh god no burden there 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our patrons at patreon.com slash 200 a day. Patrons get to add to the 200 a day Rockford Files files, help us pick which episodes to cover, and more. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Mike Gillis, a host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast. It's the McLaughlin Group for nerds. Radio vs. the Martians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, found at misdirectedmark.com. Lowell Francis, check out his award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Adam Alexander, Chris, and Dave. And finally... Big thank yous to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. Check out patreon.com slash 200 a day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. Cool. So, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier, but this so this episode, yeah. uh, So Help Me God, season three, episode seven. Uh, one thing that, that we both very much enjoy about the show and that I think makes it have this kind of timeless quality, at least to me, is how it does care about things going on in the world outside right. the world of just the show, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It cares about issues in varying degrees and varying episodes, obviously. Uh, we've talked before about how there's kind of different types of uh, Rockford's. Uh, there's the the con games. There's the kind of character studies. Uh, Rockford has a job. Rockford gets a friend out of trouble. And then there's the issue episode. Those components are usually present in each one. But this one is like, along with a handful of others, is soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk about this issue. Yeah. So this episode, we have the uh, Stephen Cannell is now, you know, mostly producing and hasn't isn't writing as many scripts. He's the series creator, co-creator. But after the first season, the main 
creative force uh, for the show um, in collaboration with Garner in his role as as Rockford. But this one is written by uh, Juanita Bartlett, yeah. who, yeah, uh, she's great. Um, she started as a uh, assistant to James Garner, I think. Like, that's how their relationship wow. started in a different show. Um, and at this point, um, she's now a, a fairly frequent script writer as along with story editing and, and other kind of creative stuff. She ends up producing shows later. Many of her scripts are aligned with the issue episodes. Not all of them, but when she pops up, she seems to have a wider sense of like what's going on in the world. Uh, what can we put into this show? I, I was not expecting to see a name pop in the credits that I would recognize. Um, but Ch- David yeah. Chase mm-hmm. shows up. And, and I was like, <laughs> oh, that's super interesting. Yes. I didn't know he was kind of stuff that early on. So that's that was really interesting. We also talk about David Chase a lot because he ends up kind of taking, not taking over, but as the series goes on, he started basically writing some scripts and then he ends up becoming a producer later as well. Um, and, and some of his scripts in this show are the like punchiest, most humorous in a lot of ways, and most like clever wordplay and stuff, along with really tight narrative stuff. He's great. This surprises me not. So I think there's some interview stuff with him where he kind of gained a lot of chops on this show working under Bartlett and uh, uh, Cannell, Stephen Cannell. Um, that he then obviously took on to all of the other things that he's done. Excellent. This one is directed by, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, Gino Schwark. You have a better shot at it than I do. He directed an episode we've talked about before, uh, Two into 556 Won't Go, if you oh, remember that yeah, one, Epi. Yeah. He has another Rockford later in the season, um, but he also directed a Columbo, which I always notice when we look at these things, yeah. because Columbo is my other favorite detective show. <laughs> Among other credits are Jaws 2, and then just a million TV shows. Uh, oh, he did um, Somewhere in Time, which is a Christopher Reeve film. It's fun. I enjoy it. It's, uh, he time travels with hypnotism, I believe. But yeah, uh, I think this particular episode, there's not too much exciting camera work. Uh, this one's pretty standard, I think. But it has, some really, it has some really good cuts that move things along really quickly, yeah. which I think are, are nice. Yeah. But uh, I think what we should probably go ahead and get into our our traditional coverage of Epi's favorite part of the episode. <laughs> the opening montage. Yeah. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. I am here for this. We, we've said before, uh, we talked a little bit about the art of the opening montage, because clearly at the time, the opening montage is meant to keep you from changing the channel, right? Like give you an idea of what's coming up, stop you from changing the channel, but it takes on a new form in this day and age of binging. And it creates mm-hmm. sort of a nice dramatic irony. In this one, the notes I have written down are just uh, Angel, Rocky, Beth, Trucks, and Kit. <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> and this is because I'm just super happy to see that Angel's going to be in it, even though his role is kind of small in this. I'm super happy to see Rocky in it. I'm super happy to see Beth in it. Any episode that has both Rocky and Trucks in it is going to be fun. And then we have uh, William Daniels, the voice of TV's uh, Knight Rider's kit. Do not fool your listeners by suggesting that one of those trucks is, in fact, a Knight Rider vehicle. Right. No. <laughs> No. Unfortunately, the cro- the Rockford uh, Knight Rider crossover, I don't think, ever happened. Opportunity lost, I gotta say. <laughs> I know. And, uh, yes, yeah, voice of Kit and also Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Oh, oh right. see, I'm, 
I know him from St. Elsewhere. I enjoyed that. Yeah, the the preview montage, I think, is pretty straightforward. Uh, We know that Rockford is going to be, he's going to have to testify about something. He doesn't know what. And we're deep into the third season here. So I think that probably the key here is that you're going to see characters that you've already seen that you want to see again. Like, that's what they're trying to tell you. Keep you from changing the channel. So, uh, Jess, did you get the sense of, of the kind of ensemble cast around Jim Rockford? from this episode yeah very much so yeah good because <laughs> again we just assume we yeah. know all these characters so we're like yay we get to see I whoever actually, i locked into the, that sort of net of characters surprisingly early in the thing i think that's a good indication of good storytelling that somebody can jump in and yeah. be like oh i see how yeah, and we get started off pretty uh, pretty quick with all of that. So our episode starts with a nice pastoral shot of the ocean waves uh, with the credits getting those out of the way quick, directly into one of my favorite features of the Rockford Files, whenever Jim is yes. dealing with food <laughs> in any way. I have this unified theory of TV detectives and food, which... I can touch on very briefly here. Uh, Rockford pretty much only (laughs) eats garbage foods and foods that he catches. Tacos, hot dogs, pizza, things that he steals (laughs) from other people. And then things that he makes other people pay for. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole hunter-gatherer thing going on here. He eats plenty of other things, but we never see it on screen. Whenever he's at a cafe or a restaurant, it's always at the beginning or end of a meal. and We don't actually see him eating. We see him eating things like tacos. Yeah. Uh, compare this with a, uh, a TV detective such as uh, Poirot, <laughs> for example, uh, who eats only extremely fussy Belgian delicacies uh, and makes a big deal over it. Hey, I'm- Belgian delicacies. They are goddamn delicious. There is nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying I, we see his character expressed right. in that voice. Belgian delicacies are not like a requirement of my personality, but I see where it comes from. Or how uh, Columbo always refuses food unless it's chili. Oh. So anyway, that's why we talk about the food whenever it, it shows up. I love that. Um, and here we, we start right off with Rockford and his father, Rocky, having some banter around the fish that they caught. And we're kind of coming in on just a normal yeah. Rockford family day. I love that Rocky is feeling down because he didn't catch any fish. Like, and trying to find a way to blame Jim for it. It can't be <laughs> Jim's fault, right? Like, it can't be anyone's fault. It's just how the, the die rolls here. That is strictly a dad move, though. I would have been successful if you hadn't messed it up for me. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's it, there's a bone of contention around, you know, where the superior fishing yeah. grounds are. Yeah. This um, Rockford family gathering is interrupted by <laughs> a knock on Jim's trailer. We're, we're getting right into the action as he is served with a, with a subpoena to appear before a federal grand jury with absolutely no other information. Yeah. And we get our first cut. There's there's no like fat in the narrative of this right, episode, yeah. right? Like it's very beat, next beat, next beat. Where where do we need to get? But yeah, so we cut right from Rockford being mystified that there's no information. And why does he have to appear to Beth's office explaining that he has to appear? <laughs> yes. I, I did want to say, though, like I think there's a, a trope character that is not investigated thoroughly enough. And that is the process server. Right. <laughs> they are tricksy. And they are fairly universally hated, even if it's the first time you've ever been served with a summons. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's worth exploring. Like characters hated on sight, right? You know, you don't know that a person who does this job exists, and you mm-hmm. hate him instantly. <laughs> 
One one thing that we haven't really been treated to that often in the Rockford Files is like a friendly knock at the door. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If there's someone at Rockford's door, I mean, as far on the scale of people you don't want to see on your doorstep out of people that have appeared on Rockford's doorstep, this this is pretty pleasant, you know, because it it could be a sucker punch or somebody with a gun. You rarely get a knock at the door. Like the best you can do is Angel knocking at the door running from someone. Right. So you're happy that Angel's there, but you got some danger on the way. But yeah, we uh, are with our friends and uh, Beth Davenport, yes. who is uh, not only Jim's attorney, but also the on-again, off-again love interest. I knew it! Yeah. <laughs> in, in case that wasn't... I was, I was wondering at what point that became clear uh, for you. I wasn't 100% sure, but when he gets out of prison and she like... And he puts his arm around her shoulder and she puts his hand his arm around her weight. Wait, no, I'm getting my... Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. there are shoulders and their waist and arms and then i was like oh, okay all right all right <laughs> yeah it's actually kind of an interesting i mean we go into it in, in other episodes but the the relationship is like we say on again and off again but it really it's, it's more just like the, the sort of 70s it's kind of a consistent low level yeah. like hey you're around <laughs> Have either of you guys seen Joe Don Baker movie Mitchell? Oh no, I want to see. It's absolutely the most trash movie. And the <laughs> way this woman, it's poor Linda Evans, and she's just around. Mm-hmm. And he's legitimately terrible. But I was like, is this a 70s thing or is this actually. Right. Well, a, a lot of Rockford's relationships are, I think we, we started to say that 70s vibe where it's like, we can have this kind of casual short term relationship and it, we don't care about your other partners or really what else you've done or what else you're going to do. But like, we're here together now. <laughs> But uh, Beth has been around since the first episode as his lawyer, as well as, uh, you know, a, a little bit more, depending on what else is going on in an in- individual episode. And they do and they do get pretty entangled romantically at times. So, yeah. Well, dating your lawyer strikes me immediately as. Right. <laughs> it has advantages and it has problems. Yeah. Like she comes and visits in the jail and is all about like, I'm his lawyer. And <laughs> she meets him right outside. Outside the gate, there's guards literally standing right there, and she's like <laughs> snuggling him. I'm like, you know, I feel like gossip and jail would get around to this sometime. <laughs> well, I think she she has that switch. She she turns on lawyer mode, and then she kind of like turns it off is kind of one of her character things. And in this case, I mean, this whole scene is is really giving us all the exposition so that we know what this issue is going to be. So Rockford's been summoned per the law. They don't have to tell you why. It might not be about you. Uh, you have to appear. And you won't know what they're asking you about right. until they're right. asking. And then you, you won't even, like, you'll just know the questions. You still won't necessarily know no, exactly. why or where they're trying to take it. Mm-hmm. And what what I like here is this, this setting up of the, the polarity of, I think, probably public opinion about this, right. this kind of stuff, right? Jim's like, I have rights. I can take the fifth if I need to. And Rocky's like, no, then you'll you'll look like you're guilty. So you shouldn't do that. I went Googling to see if that idea, like when that might have shown up. Yeah. <laughs> and it, mm-hmm. it is so tried and true. I'm going to think it went back to, you know, like the, like <laughs> the, Bill the Fifth of Rights. Amendment itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll give people this option, but everybody's going to think you did it then. Right. You know, Beth and they're saying like, Jim, that's how right. it's supposed to work. But in reality, this is how juries and 
lawyers and judges see it. Yeah. I also like how Rocky is like, but it's an honor because you're taught you're helping out Uncle Sam. Oh and Jim's like, uh, yeah. that doesn't mean it's an honor. <laughs> yeah. And he must have a real good reason. Like historically, government has right. not always had a real good reason for the things yeah. that it does. So I found Rocky's sort of uh, blind trust in the government. Yeah. First of all, hilariously naive and also divorced mm-hmm. from the current right. reality. And I think he's supposed to sound naive. Like, yeah. I think that's the intention of the uh, script here. I mean, if anyone's going to be like, no, you should trust the government, it would be Rocky. Uh, <laughs> but I think he's also putting voice to that, like, that idea so that the other characters, right, can can right. point out the more realistic version of what actually mm-hmm. happens. Uh, what might be naive is the idea that anyone needs to be told, <laughs> hey, this is naive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so now that we know that this summons has happened and kind of the stakes around it uh we cut right to the courthouse beth can't go with jim he's going to be on his own uh he can ask to consult her but then he gets summoned in before she can finish a fairly important sentence you, you can answer when they say your name <laughs> but but then don't door cuts them off yes in the moment it was just kind of how the scene rolled but in retrospect as a viewer i get tensioned when i like i clearly know that beth has an important thing to convey and you just you just watch Jim kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. just interrupt her to say other things. Like these are always very stomach knotty scenes for me. I'm like, just shut up and listen, damn it. Just shut up and listen. I had a very <laughs> similar reaction to that. In fact, like a lot of my notes further on. So I just kept a Google doc open while I was watching. And there are so many notes about like, um, stop <laughs> talking. Wait, yeah. Don't you dare. I'm just watching him dig this hole deeper. And I'm like, there gonna slam the door and like i know how this is gonna go so (laughs) yeah maybe maybe you can uh uh, go into that a little bit for us uh when we get to those those points because it sounds like you have more practical experience with (laughs) this process than than uh than i have at least maybe no more than other people who aren't lawyers but um Mm -hmm. but grand juries of are of particular interest to me because they function right. so arcanely. And Laura only mm-hmm. now just waking up to the fact that, oh, wow, this is extremely weird and not a great way of reaching <laughs> any kind of legal consensus. So, not, not a great way of finding justice. <laughs> yeah, no just even arriving at any kind of fact finding so cool well yeah i feel like part of that is intentional where the episode is trying to show us how that happens Mm -hmm. but in any case here's where we get to kind of the meat of what's going on rockford is called before this grand jury and he's being questioned by this um i guess he's a federal prosecutor gary bevins who is played (laughs) by william daniels uh who we're talking about earlier he is so cold and clinical and clipped i really hate him that's a perfect voice for a robot car (laughs) (laughs) and when the machines clinical and cold i do not want Mm -hmm. officers of the court to be that way so he so rockford is is getting asked a series of questions about his relationship with frank sorvino Mm -hmm. who is someone that rockford does not know except to have read in the papers where this uh union official was kidnapped in broad daylight apparently uh the theory here that is being pushed by the prosecutor is that rockford was involved in kidnapping him 
and then smuggling him out to a Japanese uh, ship to be carried out of the country. <laughs> the evidence here is that there's a logbook from the office of uh, Frank Sorvino that indicates that uh, he called Rockford and the call was completed. So therefore, Rockford must know him. Um, as we go through all this, we see Rockford first get confused and then get, yeah. uh, I think I say a lot, get his back up right in the face of this badger. <laughs> he does not like having his integrity questioned, obviously. Um, is something we know from many Rockford viewings. But then Bevins makes the big mistake oh, yeah. of trying to bring up his prison <laughs> record as a black mark against him. Yeah. Rockford goes to uh, invoking his Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself. <laughs> yes. Too late. Yeah. How how did that read for you, Jess, when uh, Bevins brings up the prison record? So it was infuriating <laughs> and not remotely surprising, um, mm. <laughs> which I find a lot yeah. of stuff in criminal justice reform. Yeah. I mean, there's... There's just so little a person can say in front of a grand jury. And so to defend that, I mean, they'll just cut you straight off. Like prosecutors mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. running the show. There's a judge there, but it is the prosecutor who is running the show and they are not being cross-examined. They can make any inferences or insinuations they want. They frequently play to their audience. And um, one of the things that uh, was interesting to me, because I was curious about the location, but um, in South LA, where where Jim is based, um, the roles mm -hmm. of the registered voters did not and probably do not still reflect at all the composition of the population. Oh, right. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah. So that room was filled with the yeah. <laughs> older, whiter, more conservative, regular voters. Mm-hmm. And did not remotely reflect the diversity. Uh, and so they're unlikely to have known that they knew anybody who maybe had a prison record. And right. that's one of those things that even still today, like if somebody says, I serve time for, and there's a little gasp, um, unless you're in a very specific right. place where that closed. Yeah. And I think, and later in the episode, uh, Bevins even makes a point of that. Having been to jail, a thing that neither you nor I have experienced, right? He uses that as a unifying thing with the yeah. jurors. Oh, yeah. Oh, so curated. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, and so, like, character-wise, the, the backstory of Rockford is that he was sentenced to prison. I don't remember if they ever specify exactly, but it's for some kind of, like, right. con thing. Okay. And then it turns out that he uh, was falsely accused by someone else who actually did the con or something. And so he ends up getting a pardon uh, uh, from the governor. Right. He mentions that a couple times. Uh, not in this episode, but in other episodes, the fact that it was a pardon and not like exonerated it also has gotten him into some trouble as well. It's not a reversal. Right. It's not a commutation of sentence. It's not like it's not any of those things. And so, yeah, that's another one of those things like the Fifth Amendment that goes along with like, yeah, but you did right, it. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's still it's still a black mark. But like Rockford takes a lot of umbrage at the idea that his prison record should be held against him because he's like, but I got a pardon. It makes for a really good character moment for him because he's kind of just playing along with everything until that happens. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of him that's agreeing with Rocky when he first comes in. I can talk mm -hmm. my way through this. That's not a problem. Uh, but when he brings up the criminal record, that's when he switches over to Beth's side of the argument. You know what I mean? Like that's when he says, all right, things are serious <laughs> now. 
I need to take the fifth. And up until that point, he hadn't really felt like it was about him. Right. And at that moment, it became about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And be like, no, there's no need for you to malign me. I don't have any idea what you're talking about already. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we learn at the end of that, uh, once he starts pleading the fifth, and that's when Bevan's, he's like, well, since you answered my earlier question, questions, you waived yeah. your right yeah. to do that, uh, which mm-hmm. is a thing, <laughs> which is part of a grand jury, as mm-hmm. Beth explains in the next scene where Rockford has gone before the judge, been told he has to answer because he waived his rights, refused to do so, and been sentenced with contempt of court. And that's why he is now in jail. And Beth is visiting with him to tell him that Fifth Amendment, it doesn't apply because that's how grand juries work. And you kept talking for so damn long. (laughs) You dug your own hole there, dude. Stop Mm -hmm. digging. So this is the issue right here that that is kind of given voice in this scene. And then we see it play out through the rest of the episode. Uh, So he went through that whole thing, right? He waived his right because he answered questions. He got sentenced to contempt of court. He doesn't have to answer the questions, in which case he would not waive his right. Uh, And then the the prosecutor can get a uh, waiver to not even have to respect the Fifth Amendment in a grand jury proceeding, which he can then wait out the term of the grand jury. But Mm -hmm. then the prosecutor can call another grand jury and summon him again and repeat the process. And so this is the thing, which is that if the prosecutor wants to, Rockford can continue invoking his Fifth Amendment right, continue refusing to testify for any reason. And he would just stay in jail on contempt of court, even though he hasn't been charged with anything. He hasn't been convicted of anything. There's been no evidence against him for any wrongdoing. It's just a outcome of a of of this grand jury system. I don't remember whether Bevan threatens him with this if i'm remembering whether he says it or whether it's just something i know but he i think at one point he said um i'll take you into open court yeah Mm -hmm. uh and demand your testimony and the reason for that is that uh in an open court setting refusing to answer questions and submit to the court processes and everything like that carries much greater penalties right in a grand jury setting Mm -hmm. He he says that at the end of the last scene. I think that is why Rockford's in jail now. Right. But yeah, you're right. That is part of the stick. We can take it before the judge and then the judge sentences you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so we're saying this is an issue episode. This is the issue. Right. This, yeah. It's not even a loophole. This kind of feature of the grand jury system and uncooperative witness can basically just be kept in jail in perpetuity through legal mechanisms. The, the sort of the theme thing that I ended up writing down was even people who deal with daily daily dangers and don't um, feel particularly threatened by those. Um, and even people who like manage that system or manage um, manage all sorts of daily stresses and things like that. If you get caught up in, in a sorry inexorable, illogical system, yeah. you are food the same way anybody else is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of the indignation that Jim feels about that is um, because he hasn't done anything wrong, mm-hmm. uh, which is irrelevant to the case, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, he's in, a, he's in a position of relative privilege. You know, he's, he's a white dude and, he's, and he doesn't have like many real brushes of the law. In fact, loosely, he's involved with law enforcement a little bit, you know, as like an investigator kind of rubs a little bit. He has a, he has a complicated relationship with the law. And I think we don't see it. In, it well, I mean, we see this because he's so being hit with a hammer in this episode, but 
there are many episodes that revolve around him kind of tricking the police into doing stuff for him and almost getting charged with the same crime, but he's done one thing that keeps them from really being able to get him, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But yeah, he's he's usually able to work the system. Like right. that's one Rockford thing. He's usually able to make it work for him. And yeah, I think you're right that his a lot of his indignation here is like, there has to be something we right. can do. And this is like the one time that that's like, no, there's nothing we can do. And that the spotlight fell on him in such a seemingly random yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause he still has no idea why this is happening. I mean, the thing about grand juries also in like subpoenaing witnesses and things like that is that you can have no connection. Somebody you don't even know can turn mm-hmm. the spotlight on you. So you especially feel swept up in a current or in a system you don't understand because you're not mm-hmm. even sure what you did to get there. Right. And it's very much the case with the secretary. She's like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know him. You're a name in the logbook. I punched a button and now you're <laughs> like. Now you're right. Like yeah, and we'll get to her in in a in a minute. But uh, as it turns out, he does get out of prison, though, because and I think this is the most like narrative excuse. We have to make the point about how this works, but we also need to have an episode of television, right? right? <laughs> um, but there's a clerical error where they serve the sub- the subpoena to James Rockford Jr., which is not Jim's name. Uh, his father is Joseph Rockford, and he's just James Rockford. So there was a procedural error, and uh, so Beth was spotted it and got him out of jail that way. Good job, Beth. Yeah. <laughs> I know. She <laughs> detail-oriented Beth Davenport to the rescue. So this is where we get, as you were saying, when he comes out of jail and uh, Beth's waiting for him. Rocky is there as well. And I think we get this little reversal where Rocky's like, well, now that I've seen what the government, you know, did to you. Oh, yeah. I don't know why they didn't believe you, but uh, this yeah. is terrible. You can't go back there. You can't let them do that to you again. Mm-hmm. The the Rocky 180 here is great. He's going to start suggesting a run for the border, which is <laughs> yeah. this is, this is from the guy who was like, you should be proud that you're doing a good job for Uncle Sam. <laughs> yeah. You know, they all know. That there's another subpoena in the works, but Jim has a little bit of time to figure out what's actually going on. Uh, and this is where we kind of transition from the exposition issue part to the Rockford part of this episode. At least that's mm-hmm. how I felt. I don't know, Epi, if you felt that movement yeah, uh, I mean, here. Certainly the beginning part was a very, it, it was, th- this is what happens when you get caught up in the court system. It wasn't like action oriented. I'm thinking back again to the montage where they gave us these trucks. <laughs> <laughs> just uh-huh. as it's like when do those happen that there will be some action stay with us you hold on you will get there we'll get there uh and this is where it starts to kind of ramp in that direction yeah it's super front-loaded mm-hmm. with a lot of things to make that investigation necessary and yeah. <laughs> right yeah, so you know there are there's probably a fair percentage of the people who are like I'm sticking with it for the trucks that looks yes. impressive right <laughs> come on trucks <laughs> um well jim gets right right to work he uh he borrows a dime from rocky <laughs> for his phone call uh jim rockford always borrowing change for his phone booth calls uh i will also note that that's worth about 45 cents in today's dollars <laughs> <laughs> that's my job but yeah, so we get a little bit of a uh, Rockford con here where yeah. he impersonates a federal marshal, which I'm sure is a, is a crime. Yeah. <laughs> to, to talk the name of someone else on the witness list out of Bevins. 
it was, I, I appreciated having that little moment of seeing Rockford do the thing he does, which is right. Yeah. Come up with a story, talk fast, get the other person off of there, you know, n- not really knowing what's going on and just want to get rid of him, whatever he's doing, just get out of my face. And that's how he gets the information that he's looking for. It has always has that little, well, not always, but like the, the added empathetic pressure where he's like, mm-hmm. I'm in trouble here. Some invented job stress that anybody he's talking to on the other end can maybe sympathize with, or at least realize why he's just flustered about this and just needs mm-hmm. a way that isn't normally within the system to get the thing solved. I feel like Bevins would not have been uh, <laughs> um, really <laughs> open to that because he's like, I'm too important for that. But he's also right. Right. important for this phone call to go on. So yeah. you know, he coughs it up, but not in an empathetic way at all. Yes. Yeah, in this case, he uses what he knows of Bevins, right? Which is like, <laughs> this guy's going to try and get me off the phone as quickly as possible. Also, I want to give a shout out to the broad Midwestern accent as the voice of... Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is James Garner's go-to kind of folky yeah. uh, impersonation accent. He also, the name he uses is also one that he uses for like lots of characters. Okay. Yeah. He has the Oklahoma oil man. When yeah. he's like impersonating someone rich. And then he has this more like folky, slightly more Midwestern, aw shucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> common man kind of persona. That's the name for it. Uh, but yeah, so he gets the name of this secretary, the one who testified uh, about the phone call. So we get Rockford going to the union office. Uh, he pretends to be a member of the local and we get um, the first of our truly memorable minor characters in this goon uh, at the <laughs> at the front desk who uh, says whatever he says, he says left and then he points to his left, not Rockford's left. <laughs> right. Uh, so I got to say, I like out of curiosity... I looked up this supposed union IBTTW. Oh, oh sure, yeah. On the secretary's door, and I gotta say, it's definitely not a union, but <laughs> it has a number of highly inappropriate entries attached to it in Urban Dictionary. Oh, boy. Really? <laughs> we'll leave that as an exercise to our listeners to track that down. Yep. IBTTW. Happy hunting. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, once he goes in to see this secretary, um, he tries to run some patter past her, but she recognizes him. She knows who he is. Yeah. He's Jim Rockford. She explains this very bizarre, but the point of this is so that she doesn't necessarily know who he's talking to, right? Mm Mm-hmm. For this kind of reason. So she probably couldn't like testify about who he talked yeah. to. But there's this whole arcane system of she calls, she places the call, but then he picks up. And then if he hangs up, then, then she knows it wasn't connected or whatever. There's a lot of things, including this first guy that we meet. I guess I, I would like Jess's input on this. As a seasoned Rockford, Rockford viewer, this is <laughs> screaming mafia at me. <laughs> I heard the word Sorvino, and after I stopped being excited that maybe Paul Sorvino was right. in this episode, I was like, oh, so it's a mob thing. And then they're like, union boss. I'm like, oh, sh-. of course yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I think Jesse was saying earlier, the secretary pawned this whole thing off on Rockford by giving the testimony that she makes very clear. No, I testified that you talked to him. Yes. Which is kind of a lie in a way because she doesn't 100% know, but right. to her, this is how the system works. It made it easier for me to say yeah. that 
than to explain that there's this little difference in between 99% and 100% certainty that he talked to you. Yeah. And part of me was part of me was thinking like, you had choices, lady, you could Right. You could have stopped She's kind of the villain of this piece, you <laughs> know, in, in a way. She's one of those incidental villains that gets the bad things rolling but like disconnects. Yeah. And is out. Mm-hmm. Um but I I wonder also whether that came from giving her a feeling of importance in her testimony. Mm-hmm. Right. That like, well, I've got a name for yeah. you and it's this guy, you know, jurist faint and you know, like the whole thing, like <gasps> Yeah. Right. How much of her power is she exercising by doing that? Secretarial power is boundless. Um, right. <laughs> which is a, a secret of the workings of the world. Like if he'd been able to, if he'd been able to talk to a secretary of Bevins, then it would all have been cleared up. But I, I feel like she maybe played it for the drama and right. the self and the importance, which only made the spotlight harder on Jim. Which I think brings up a thing that I, we might have missed earlier. In the same note of like having this moment of like where you get to exert power where you normally don't have it, we mm-hmm. get that about the jury foreman and his gavel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's actually going to be more important later on. Doesn't uh, Beth say that he probably bought his own gavel? Yes. Right. Yeah. They don't, they don't give it to foreman, but sometimes when a citizen gets excited, right. they just buy one. <laughs> All I can think of is John Boehner's enormous gavel. Right. <laughs> But it's, you know, it's that thing where if you don't have a lot of power in your day to day life and then you're given it, there's this chance of like over overdoing it here. Yeah, I think that's a sub theme that's definitely here. So this this party is broken up by a, a Mr. Henshaw and the goon who come in. He's he's another union mucky muck. They they want to talk to Mr. Rockford. They've been looking for him, actually. And this is when we finally get to the yeah. trucks. Yeah. <laughs> Henshaw and our goon, our, our gorilla, take Rockford out to some kind of loading dock area. And uh, there's a very telegraphed, like, oh, watch out for that truck. <laughs> you know, get out of the way. It's dangerous in, in this area. But yeah, there's a series of extremely thinly veiled threats where basically they want to talk to him about Sorvino. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the grand jury called him, he must know something. And they want to know what he knows. <laughs> Just sad. Like nothing. <laughs> That's not a satisfaction right. to anybody in this entire episode. And he basically threatens to torture the info out of Jim. He's like, the way we will ask the questions, you won't be able to hold anything back or something like that. <laughs> I didn't catch the wording. That's ominous. It's extremely ominous, and we were like, "Yes, these are this is these are the bad union guys." Uh, the, the heart of the Rockford Files, in a lot of ways, is with the the working class, uh, but the narrative frames are often casting the union as as the bad guy. Yeah. Jim, being aware of his environment, um, <laughs> I think, is able to 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 end this uh, this threatening moment. By using yet another passing truck to get a little distance between him and, and Henshaw, run around to the other side, and then he escapes the yard by jumping on the back and hanging out behind the cab. <laughs> he ran a screen. That's mm-hmm. what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, again, a very Rockfordy thing yeah. where Jim's able to use a momentary distraction of some kind to his advantage. But we end with an, with an ominous find out where he lives. Right. Which is easy because he's in the phone book. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he advertises. So that's on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we go from here to Jim tapping another of his good friends yes. and resources. Angel. Angel. Yeah. Angel Martin. Uh, so we're in the basement of the newspaper 
that Angel's mm-hmm. brother-in-law owns and has given him a job in the basement. And it's it's not entirely clear what the job is. In context of the episode, uh, I guess none of that is explained. Right. But as Rockford fans, uh, this all tracks with uh, Angel Angel's character as established. Um, but yeah, so Rockford's looking for some kind of picture because he's starting to he's starting to come around to the idea. If everyone thinks he had something to do with Sorvino, maybe he did, and he just didn't know it. Right. <laughs> we just get a we get a little bit of banter uh, between Rockford and Angel uh, about not being able to find a clear picture of this guy who wears an overcoat in California etc etc and angel there's an important note here for you epi that angel has been promised 20 dollars. Yes. <laughs> i did not know what to make of that that 20 dollars is almost 90 dollars today right so it's not a small chunk of change uh i went to the calculators punched in the numbers and we got like 89 dollars and 20 cents or something like that so it's it's money that like I wouldn't promise someone unless I I was facing jail time again. And and this is the thing about Angel, right? He'll help, but he always needs to get some for him, right? Um, yeah, as we see again uh, later. But before Rockford can find anything helpful in a in a good sight gag, he raises his hand to get some more information, and the new subpoena is handed directly into it. And for some reason, the second appearance of the process server <laughs> made me really be like, "Wow, this guy's really good." Oh, yeah. It solidifies that trope of them as being super tricksy and, mm-hmm. um, you know, able to outwit the common person. Aside from, like, the the grand jury abuses and everything like that, sadly, the thing, the second most recognizable thing about this episode <laughs> was that file room. Oh. There are so many legal and police files that are in exactly the same state right right now. Mm -hmm. It is just like microfiche and photocopies and stuff. Yeah. And just deteriorating paper. God, there are years and years of, um, of court proceedings and uh, you know, testimony records and, and police reports and all sorts of things that have just been destroyed sometimes through natural things like a Mm -hmm. flood or, you know, something like that. But then also they're like, oh, we had the rats real bad. And I'm like, what do you have the rats? <laughs> I will say about the process server here, one of the things that sells them is Angel's take, spit take. Or, well, not spit take, but mm-hmm. like Angel is mystified that that man showed up out of nowhere. <laughs> He's like terrified even, like in, in that lovely paranoid way. But maybe also wanting to applaud because that was super yeah, slick. Yeah. Yeah. And he looked like he was really satisfied with himself, too. I'm pretty sure he was wearing the same shirt as the first time we saw him. Like, that yellow <laughs> shirt really stuck in my mind. I was like, yeah, this this guy's a pro. He really knows stuff. You know, the sad way that implies, so... We hope you enjoyed that discussion of uh, another wonderful episode of The Rockford Files. Here are a couple ways to support us that will keep us bringing this podcast to you, our fellow Rockford Files fans. First, you can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever else you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. And of course, both of us have other projects. Epi, what do you have going on right now? As always, I'm working on the next issue of Worlds Without Master. Uh, You can go to www.worldswithoutmaster.com or just patreon.com slash epidiah. Or you can go to digathousandholes.com where I talk about my other projects, including non-sword and sorcery games and fiction. 
How about you, Nathan? What are you working on? For the year of 2018, I am doing a monthly zine project called Zine 2018. Each monthly issue is a collection of essays, art, photography, and a game, and each one organized around a central theme based on the month. So you can see more about that at ndpdesign.com slash zine2018. And it is available through my Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. Uh, in addition, you can check out all of my games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game and the forthcoming Trouble for Hire, which may be yeah. interesting to some of our listeners. So that's it for now. Thank you again for listening. We very much appreciate your support. And now back to the show. Really close to the top, I have a note that says, oh, the unbearable whiteness of this. Yeah. I think part of my lens is that I look at what's happening to him Mm -hmm. and uh, think about all the different ways in which all of this stuff is turned up to 11 for Mm -hmm. any person of color or really anybody in in an underserved or... uh, A marginalized kind of... Yeah, marginalized. Thank you. Yeah. Not, not to give the series a pass. That's not what I'm about to no. say. So it's extremely white, like on average. Yeah. Like if you, you know, looking at all the episodes, it is. Television. But it it does take some moments to address itself. Sometimes, like uh, the character that Isaac Hayes plays, that comes back a couple times. Mm-hmm. Gandhi is kind of like he's basically like Rockford but black and with more of an anger issue, um, which I guess is its own thing. And I think the show does tease apart how he has been treated differently by the system because he's also been to jail and been out and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing where like the show is very white and demonstrating that, but does every so often kind of address that with its casting and with some of the more kind of, again, issue E episodes uh, in a way that, is pretty compelling, I think, as a modern viewer, that there's still some awareness of that, at least. Yeah, a little self-awareness can go a long way. Yeah. Like, one of the things that I noticed was that all the voices from the prison cells when Jim's walking yeah. to his cell were all black dialect. Yeah. I was like, oh, thank you. Not all the guys in the yard are not all right. full color, but still, I was like, oh, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, we'll continue on. Um, uh, after being served his subpoena, Rockford uh, returns to his trailer to discover that it has been tossed. Someone has gone through and <laughs> absconded with his many of his records dating back to the uh, to the incident, which was two months ago. He's in there. Rocky's in there. You know, he's kind of looking through his drawers and stuff. And Rocky, of, of course, is dumbfounded. Uh, why would anyone do this? What, what were they looking for? Mm-hmm. And then we get another knock on the door. <laughs> And Mr. Henshaw and his goon appear. There's a tense moment where he tells the gorilla to get Rocky out of there. And then we hear from from the back of the trailer, from the bedroom, the... uh, Dulcet tones? Yes, thank you. The dulcet (laughs) tones of Sergeant Dennis Becker, LAPD. Yes. I gather that is a a popular character with you guys. <laughs> so Dennis and and Rockford go way back. They're they're friends, and their relationship is so wonderfully antagonistic. <laughs> and I think this scene does just a great job of showing exactly how it is because. Dennis mm-hmm. is is helping Rockford put his trailer back together. When a friend asks you to help them move, they usually bribe you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> there is not even beer and pizza on the table for this thing. Right. <laughs> he has been promised a steak. 
That is made very yes. clear. Oh, yeah. Rescind my comments. There's <laughs> a amount I would do for a steak sometimes. <laughs> but he's doing like, he's doing, it's a very intimate friend thing to do to help them clean up. When it turns out that he's saving, might be saving Rocky's, uh, Rockford's life, he is so upset with Rockford. <laughs> Because he's clearly been used. <laughs> right. And Rockford has the dual inclination to get some help with his trailer. But also, someone's going to show up and try to right. rough me up. So if Dennis is around. <laughs> if I have a cop. So, uh, yeah, I think in my notes I say a wild Dennis appears. <laughs> and uh, once Rockford introduces him as Sergeant Dennis Becker, LAPD, uh, then Henshaw gets a big smile on his face and says, oh, we yeah. can talk later. <laughs> And as you say, then uh, after they leave, Dennis starts fuming because <laughs> he realizes, oh, this is why I was invited to dinner. You know, if you wanted police protection, you could have asked for it. But I think this is, again, important to kind of the dynamic. Rockford's like, well, would I have gotten it? And Dennis is like, no, but you could have asked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you could have been straight with me. Yeah, there's <laughs> etiquette. Exactly. And this is a relationship all over the place. Like De- Rockford's always asking Dennis to run license plates for him, asking him to see if this guy, you know, has a record, that kind of you stuff. you got to have that thread. That's pivotal in any kind of show like this but dennis also on his you know kind of comes back with needing rockford's help sometimes sometimes he gets into jams that he can't get out of through police work so yeah they do have this kind of complicated uh relationship and it was nice to see him yeah these are all of the ensemble players basically rocky beth angel and dennis that's the halo of secondary characters around jim it is true that there was at least one good knock at his door in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the final point here is that uh, Rocky, I think, is like, so was it those guys who ransacked the place? But no, why would they come back? Yeah. Clearly, there's someone else who was looking for those records. Mm-hmm. And now that he doesn't have his books, so he can't prove that he didn't have this guy as a client or whatever. He has no evidence uh, before he goes before the uh, the grand jury again. And so we go back to the courthouse and Jim, knowing knowing how the system works now, uh, answers his name and then mm-hmm. pleads the fifth. And this is where we get the big monologue almost uh, from Bevins. You know, of all of the amendments, the fifth is your favorite. <laughs> Unlike those of us who haven't been to prison, you know, you know the difference between being imprisoned and the sweet taste of freedom or whatever he says. Baby bastard. Yeah. One thing I did notice in that second return to the courthouse is that um, Bevins is getting pressure from above. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time you see him not in the most powerful position because the FBI is like, dude, wrap it up. Get him out, get him testifying, and then let it go. So it feels like he's on a short rope from his superiors for the first time. So Bevins uses escalation or the threat of escalation to his superiors to get what he like. If you won't give me right. this, I will get it from a person above you kind of thing. But that that doesn't usually, you know, I mean, okay, let me say like a statistically insignificant <laughs> number of those kind of es- escalations actually end up in some place like the heroic Supreme Court battle. Thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we associate like going up the food chain in the, you know, in the federal court system to, to be like, but it is uh, a lot of bureaucracy that almost never ends in anything that dramatic. Well, and I think earlier uh, Beth even said something like, like you're not going to be take this all the way to the Supreme right. court. Like it's just not going to happen. So it's kind of a similar thing from, from Bevan's side. Um, 
I think you're right that he is feeling the pressure. Get this information. He thinks he can get it from Rockford. And then he starts feeling this personal antagonism, right, through the course of this. First of all, the foreman at this point with his gavel, as we uh, mentioned earlier, he's like, why do you have to badger him? You can see the foreman starting to get on Rockford's side a little bit because Bevins is going, you know, so hard against him. And he allows Rockford to make this statement, which is an amazing monologue from James Garner about being asked all these questions. He's been called a liar. He's been harassed. He's been intimidated. This all culminates with uh, uh, a heated exchange with Bevins where he tells him to, to get his grant of immunity because this is the deal. He'll get the grant of immunity, call him back, and then he'll have to testify. Get his grant of immunity and <laughs> stick it in his ear. Oh, yeah. Shocking. <laughs> yes, a, sh- a shocking statement to make in front of the grand jury. I, I was thinking during that that monologue that while, like, excellent television, that dude mm. would have been dragged out of right. the room. Like, <laughs> three minutes pops into right. that. It would be like, he would have, the prosecutor would have tried to shut him down and then he would have thrown him right out into contempt. Well, it does say on the end screen that it was a dramatized, uh, you know, thing. Um, I'm sure between this and probably the final scene, but uh, this episode is actually the one that James Garner won his Emmy for lead actor in a dramatic series or whatever the the Emmy's called. I can see it. Yeah, the series won an Emmy in the next season for like best series, but he won an Emmy for this episode, which is pretty cool. But yes, he is found in contempt of court again, and we go back to jail. (laughs) And now we get this whole sequence inside of prison. I'm I'm gonna call it that jail was a community college and no mistaken. (laughs) Like I'm like, I've seen those buildings and I've seen that baseball field. (laughs) That's either a California high school or a community college. Right. (laughs) Good job, set locator. Right. They shot these things in like five days each or something like that. Five or six days. So yeah, they were pretty on point with like what can we get? That? All right, great. We'll make it a jail. I know. Um, so we get uh, Jim in jail, but we uh, kick off the sequence with him meeting Angel. In, uh, well, we actually kick it off with Angel coming into oh. the prison and being yeah. extremely nervous. As well, I think Angel walking into the prison was uh, is exquisite. I wish I had the young people's abilities to make memes or gifts. <laughs> I guess gifts is one of them. <laughs> Because that's one I could use over and over again. Yeah, if anyone can give that for us, we'll happily uh, uh, retweet it endlessly. Um, he's just so like nervous and like, oh my god, what if I never get out? Right, just in his body. I don't language. know the doors from this side. <laughs> yeah. But he's meeting with Jim. He has found a photo, a full face photo of Sorvino. But in the most angel, you <laughs> yes. are the worst move. He will not give him the photo till he gets the. he's been promised. And we go through an entire negotiation of how Angel is going to hand over this photo to in a way where he's guaranteed to get his money. Okay, to be fair to Angel, he wouldn't normally be even if Jim said, I'll get you the $20. Jim sometimes doesn't give him the $20. You know, like that's, (laughs) I mean, that's true. Um, But it's this rock in a hard place that he's got Jim stuck in that forces them to figure out this whole plan of him taking it to Beth. And, you know, like that whole, yeah. it's, oh, it's so exquisitely angel. 
think it's like well, too much trouble and- for him to go there and get the right. money. <laughs> like, you want it or don't you? <laughs> And I'll read a little bit into this and say that this might be like the only time that Angel has Jim in a way that right. he cannot wriggle out of it or just to d- deny him something. Usually Jim has the upper hand in their relationship. Like he's able to either physically, you know, move Angel out of the way and get what he wants or he's able to threaten him or just pay him or go somewhere else. It's just be more inconvenient. He'd rather use Angel. This is like one of the few times where Angel's like, no. I have all of right. the cards. <laughs> one, and that is Jim has no money in jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Angel's a little dumb about it, and that is also perfectly <laughs> Angel. And he's also 100% willing to use the guard against Jim. <laughs> oh, right. Oh. Yeah, the body language of the two of them and the guard is yeah. fantastic. So so we end that with this plan of of... I'll go to Beth, she'll pay me, I'll give her the photo, and then she'll bring it to you, which we then cut to the combination of of Beth with the photo. So they'd ended with $30, and her saying, $50, that seemed high. <laughs> which, so classic. That's $223 in today's money, <laughs> just, just so you know. I really like these updates. This is like easily one yeah. of my favorite things. This is great. Yeah, uh, Epi as Rockford's yeah. uh, accountant has been keeping keeping close track of uh, how his money moves around. I have a calculator, I have a bottle of whiskey, and I have a bottle of Pepto Bismol, and that's my that's, that's my impersonation of Rockford's accountant. <laughs> that's I was gonna say that is perfect scene setting for an accountant's office. It's like, oh, oh, what is it now? But she got this picture. And Rockford recognizes it as someone that he knows as George Catman. And so it is finally resolved that, yes, Rockford did know this man, but obviously under an assumed name. Uh, uh, Sorvino disappeared on the 23rd. He met with this guy on the 24th, claiming to be an insurance guy. And he was uh, looking for a couple guys on some kind of insurance beef. And he wanted Rockford to track them down. So Rockford then spins out this theory, which we accept as the true story, um, because we (laughs) never hear anything more about it, that uh, Sorvino may have arranged his own kidnapping for whatever reason. He had to make sure that the goons who did it left town so they couldn't be identified or talk or anything. And so he hired Rockford to make sure they weren't in town because Rockford did not find these guys. Finally, we have some kind of explanation for why this is all happening. The mystery isn't so important in this episode and and that's fine like yeah the mystery is really not important at all so when when it's finally revealed to me i'm like yeah whatever okay Mm -hmm. like that's yeah that that seems fair okay (laughs) yeah Okay, let's yeah. go with that. Yeah, because yeah. this this episode is not about the mystery. Yeah. None of the pressures in this episode are about Sorvino or what he did or didn't do, right? Right. It, that's all just the justification for this whole thing with the jury and the exercise of power. I was going to say, if there's any decoding that he needs to do in this episode, it's decoding the system. Right. right. Yeah. And so I would just contrast this with an episode that's about the mystery, right? Where this whole grand jury thing actually could still happen, maybe. But it would be kind of the background element. And we'd have all this back and forth about Sorvino and this mistaken identity and who did what and who's in danger now. And maybe goons are coming after Rockford now, which we get a little bit of in the next couple scenes. Because Beth... Well, let's go tell Bevins and Rockford's like, no, because he doesn't like me. And so I need this information to get out, which is probably true. 
as established in, oh, in the next scene where we do get Bevins talking to the FBI guy, as you as you mentioned earlier, the feds, they don't care about Rockford. They want Sorvino. And Bevins yeah. has this personal vendetta now. This turkey belongs in a cage. <laughs> he wants to, to let him sweat. It'll do him good. So this whole uh, kind of final sequence uh, still takes place in the prison. We get a brief scene of these two prisoners, at least one of which we've definitely seen before as a gorilla. I think the smaller one. Yeah. But they they have an exchange where they're going to take take this guy Rockford out before he can do any talking. And then we go to the prison yard or perhaps the uh, community college baseball field <laughs> where the larger of these two goons engineers a situation where uh, he's in Rockford's way and then gets gets a swing on him. Uh, there's a tussle. There's a big crowd. Rockford manages to avoid getting stabbed and uh, demands to see the warden. I think we start to see Rockford trying to play the system as much as he can with what he knows, right? Mm-hmm. So he knows someone's after him. I will talk to the warden and try to get him to understand that I'm in danger. Which is fantasy land, okay? He gets to see, <laughs> he gets to see the warden on a single request. Right. And then he says stuff with the nerve of like, how many how many men get paroled out of here in a pine box? Oh my God. Okay, so <laughs> my notes are in all caps. It says, so many days in solitary for anyone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Like, if he was in solitary longer, it probably would have been fine, actually. Not very solitary for solitary, though. I, the rules must have changed. I'm not aware of it. <laughs> well, again, dramatized. Mm. We, we we get to see Jim with some pithy comebacks. Uh, I, I fell down an IMDb rabbit hole. I apologize. Because you were like, hey, maybe we've seen this goon before. And I think this is the bigger of the goons. He has mm. been on Rockford several times. But perhaps more importantly, he is Swamp Thing from the movie Swamp Thing. No. <laughs> yes. Really? No. His wow. name is Dick Duroc. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> wow. Who <Yeah>. knew? <laughs> I mean, he is a hell of a goon. Yeah, no, he's great. He He's appeared in a lot of things where his, the name of his character is simply so-and-so's thug. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I just had to to bring that up because that, oh man. That's great. I do like that Rockford here makes an appeal to authority, which is like another standard Rockford yeah. move. Even as unrealistic in, in fantasy land as it is, this is within his character to be like, okay, the first thing is to try and see if the law can solve my problem for me. Well, he, unfortunately, all he manages to get is the single night in solitary just for fighting. And then in the laundry tomorrow. But but the warden will tell the guard to keep an eye out because uh, that's a comfort. Yeah. And then we get a, a fairly dramatic scene, I think, in the laundry yeah. room with all the, I don't know, pants presses and various laundry machines. It's a very good setting for disrupting sensory right. information. You know, so it's really hard to get your bearings and to know who's coming from where and Things like that. Um, <laughs> I'm attuned to those scenes. I'm like, wow, this would really be yeah. hard to function in. Well, and everyone's wearing the same clothes, right? Because they're all wearing yeah. the prison clothes. And they're surrounded by the same color, laundering the same clothes. There's a significant nod to the guy who... It's it's hard to tell whether he fakes or actually presses his own fingers in a, some kind of machine. Loud and steamy. And that's... <laughs> I mean, I presume the actor faked it at, at the very least. <laughs> well, yes, I, I would. I would certainly hope so. 
Yes, he screams. The guard goes over, and Rockford, again yeah. appealing to authority, goes to the guard. It's like, didn't the warden tell you anything? And the guard is having none of it and sends him back to work. Our larger goon approaches him under cover of a rolling rack of clothes. Rockford takes the initiative to push it over on him. We start to get a big scuffle. Uh, other prisoners join in and just start punching each other. Apparently, this is a good excuse for everyone to get in, get in some uh, some grudges. Though there is a there is a moment on the camera that I think is key, which is the guard starts to go over to see, like to interfere, and someone right. swings a laundry cart in his way. So you do see the coordinated effort uh, uh, between some of these guys, um, and we get an extremely dramatic finale where. Rockford gets the the better of the bigger guy, gives him a final big punch against the jaw, turns around and gets stabbed in the stomach by the yeah. smaller guy with the shiv. Yeah. Oh, no, Jim. Jim has been stabbed. No. So our next scene is in the hospital. There's been four hours of surgery, yeah. but he's going to be okay. Everyone stand down. Jim's okay. The show will go on. <laughs> One of the things that totally cracked me up was <laughs> the doctor who was telling them about his mm-hmm. like condition and everything um couldn't do it without making gross sound effects <laughs> i was like you're you are legitimately terrible at your job like if, if you can't tell victims families about what happened without making like gagging noises yeah <laughs> they're not all winners uh we like lots of the actors on this show but they're not all 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 uh home runs though i will say so epi mm-hmm. the smaller guy the one who stabs rockford he he's the guy who plays tom little oh in chicken okay. little is a little right. chicken. that's a, another rockford files episode one of one of our perennial favorites but uh anyway yes uh so thankfully we don't have too much of the doctor dennis arrives to break the news that they got the guys that um stabbed uh rockford so <laughs> that's good at least and they go in to see him Jim is lying in bed, recovering from surgery, uh, but, you know, putting up a good front, cracking jokes, um, trying to put everyone else at ease like he does. And we get a little bit of exposition about the stuff that happened, which was that those two guys, they were hired by Sorvino to shut Jim up before he could do more testimony because Sorvino walked off with... Five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars from the union pension fund. Rocky's line in this: "What kind of jails <laughs> they got around this country?" <laughs> I had to stop watching for a few minutes until I could get myself under control yeah. because that cracked me up so hard. <laughs> uh, and we get the the final piece that so Bevins has agreed to drop the charges, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess will be the contempt of court charges uh, in exchange for Jim's testimony to kind of seal the deal and. Uh, finish putting all the evidence out against Sorvino. Yeah. And I guess here we also see a little bit of, we kind of see a little bit of each of their relationships with Jim, I think, uh, in how they behave with him in the, in the hospital bed. It's always kind of a good moment in a series. I mean, all right. So in order to get here, you have to greatly imperil uh, a character, but then you get this moment where you have to cast things aside and just kind of deal with the fact that you, you care about this person, right? You know, you don't want them all the time, but like every so often it's kind of a good time to just sit and watch characters caring for each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a nice moment. It, it goes pretty quick, uh, but I think it's, <laughs> it's efficient. Uh, and it's a nice little kind of counterweight against all the very serious stuff that we've seen else elsewhere in the episode. But we go from here back to the courthouse for our dramatic final courtroom i guess it's not really a courtroom it's a jury a jury room jury panel scene uh beth is seems very happy 
that Rockford is going to be out of it. Yeah. He just has to say his piece and then he's done with this whole thing. And we go inside to where Bevins is summing up and uh, lays out all the stuff that we just heard uh, kind of for us as the viewing audience. I forget if he says anything, but he basically he's like, OK, Mr. Rockford, you can leave. <laughs> and Rockford says that that isn't all. We get a little bit of head to head between Rockford and Bevins. We're done with you. You've done your testimony. Leave. Yeah. But the foreman is interested in what Rockford has to say. And oh. in another soliloquy that I think you really have to watch to really get all the the, the emotional weight, right? Like, because this is Jim finally out from under the threat of imprisonment and with the righteousness of being proved right. That he didn't know anything. And also the um, the indignation of somebody <laughs> who's not used to being kept right. down, finally coming back up again. <laughs> like his autonomy is restored and and he has things to say about it. And yeah. so he takes this as his platform to do so. So he's essentially, he's been treated with contempt. He's been subject to the abuse of power and he wants an apology. Bevan says that he's been treated with, I think, scrupulous attention to the law and that the grand jury has no apology and rockford's like i don't want one from the grand jury i want one from you the the foreman allows us to continue and rockford's kind of final bit is that he he recites uh, a summation of a case <laughs> any injustice no matter how small uh is an injustice under under the law etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm not going to try to repeat the speech but um thematically it's you know encapsulating mm -hmm. the injustice that he has been subject to and then it turns out that that is from a uh, a closing statement that bevins himself made when he when he was defending some client who had been subject to undue uh, abuse of 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 the law and <laughs> and how did he find that quote without the without the internet <laughs> well he was reading legal magazines in <laughs> while he was in the hospital i think someone mentions oh that's legit yeah like uh, there's like one line a little earlier where it's like he's been reading all those legal magazines oh you don't want to stop somebody but yeah. yeah to pull that whole quote without the internet is just magical well, the magical. fact that he memorized it right he doesn't have notes yeah. <laughs> he hates Bevan so much that he committed this fairly complicated uh, long quote to memory, but he throws that back in Bevan's face and there's a pause and you hear the like awkward <laughs> rustling and gasps from the jury, which honestly was the most unrealistic part of the entire episode to me. <laughs> Bevan's looking chastened when he said that was the most unrealistic part. The fact that anyone in that in that courtroom would be like, "Oh, he he said that. How could he possibly have right. uh, done this to poor Jim when he said that multiple years ago?" Right. Nobody ever changes opinions. <laughs> but the point is, Rockford gets to throw Bevan's own words back in his face. And then he gets up out of his, his witness box and buttons his coat and strides away. And we freeze frame on serious Jim Rockford walking out of the jury room. And then we cut to the yeah the, the title card. It said the, uh, the abuse of the federal grand jury system as dramatized here yeah. is currently permissible under existing laws. And that's the end of the episode. There was at least one place that I read that said that one of the reasons why they put that up there uh, was that they didn't think people would believe mm -hmm. that that was a thing that happened. 
but I don't know, you know, like stories like that get told and retold. So maybe I shouldn't be spreading rumors on a podcast. So I will say that, like, I'm not sure if that's right. If they felt that they needed to do that or not for whatever reason, I, I think it's extremely effective. Yeah. I remember when I first saw this episode, I think back when I was watching on Netflix, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that they took that moment to make that clear was something that I remembered. Oh, I did not know that. In contrast... I think the vast majority of the episodes end with a freeze frame on James Gardner smiling. That's how we stop a Rockford Files episode is by just saying everything's going to be all right. Yeah. So that is so help me God. So we have a reference text here, uh, 30 Years of the Rockford Files by Ed Robertson, which is a fairly well-researched from from interviews with people blow by blow of many of, of of the episodes and kind of the story behind the series and stuff. And according to this... James Garner was proud of this episode, not only because he won the Emmy, but because he thought that they had done something really important in bringing this issue to light. He was under the impression that this episode contributed to some of the changes in grand jury laws that did occur later in the 70s. I wasn't able to confirm that with any other research uh, without getting into legal stuff that I don't really know how to access or read. I wasn't really able to track exactly how things had changed, but... That was a one takeaway, at least for the people involved, was that what they'd done had had some impact on actually changing something, which is pretty cool. There are weirder stories of media influencing like an episode or a movie influencing uh, politicians that translates into public policy. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- it doesn't surprise me at all to learn that that's not a, that's not a ridiculous conclusion right. to jump to. One other thing that, it, that, that this points out is that this entire thing was a Juanita Bartlett project. She'd read a, a New Yorker story about it and thought it would make good material and ran it past the uh, the ACLU and the American Bar Association to make sure that like the law stuff was correct, which it apparently was, except there's like one thing she had to change uh, to clarify a procedure. But they did do kind of due diligence to make sure they were obviously dramatized in terms of how much, you know, as you were saying, probably how much Jim could say at certain points. But uh, it was fairly close to how things actually worked. I was wondering, actually, whether whether it was one of those cases where somebody reads a thing right. that really knocks their socks off or whether somebody on the writing or production staff knew somebody who had a brush right. with the system. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, I mean, like that personal contact is another way that people really look harder at some of the more black box parts of of a system. And for all intents and purposes, grand juries are kind of a, a cipher until very recently. I don't think almost anybody knew anything about them. Mm-mm. I mean, I felt like I learned something. Again, I don't know how much the process has changed over the years. It sounds like some of the technicalities probably have, but the general thrust of like, as we were saying earlier, being summoned before a grand jury, who knows why right. you don't, don't have a lawyer with you. you. You're waiving some of your other rights just by answering questions. All that stuff is all part of this the system still. Yeah, and the system that they're dealing with in the episode is the federal system. Um, mm-hmm. There can be even more arcana down toward your state and local authorities. And that's harder to track in terms of changes over the years. I mean, you, you know, there's a fairly straight line uh, timeline for evolution of the federal system. Um, but gosh, you'd have to track so many hundreds of uh, counties and states and oh, sure. it would it would get really hard to track at any point. Well, uh, so that said, yeah. 
I think it's a great episode. Uh, like it's, it's a compelling episode of television to me, at least. Uh, I'd like to hear Jess mm-hmm. kind of what you thought both as, as an episode of TV and as seeing a full episode of the Rockford files. Uh, what did you think? So I was surprised at, because I, you know, I knew it was like an investigator and, you know, so there'd probably be some investigating and stuff. Um, and so I, I was surprised by the balance of the episode being so heavily on like expository action and things like that to teach people about the grand jury system and everything. Um, it felt really intimate. I mean, like you really got a sense mm. of the bewilderment and the, you know, the outrage and all of these things. And, and still the powerlessness of somebody who's not used to being completely powerless. And I felt like that was delivered in a really empathetic way that viewers definitely would, um, you know, feel connected to. And that's not an easy thing to do with something this kind of arcane. So um, the I agree, the story writing was really tight, as was the screenplay and everything. And yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really a good episode of television divorced from any other context yeah. that I had. <laughs> well, <laughs> which was none. Great. Glad to hear that. <laughs> I would, like Nathan and I have gone over this uh, in an uh, earlier episodes about how like any television show there there is a formula going on in the Rockford Files but it's not as formulaic as you would expect they often do episodes that really break the sort of mold that they established or what you would expect if you just if a couple of podcasters just contacted you and said hey you want to watch an episode for us <laughs> I did say I want to be on more podcasts and this is <laughs> I was like yeah go for it yeah like, <laughs> I'm all about the curiosity, so. That's great, yeah. Um, And I do, I want to point out that, like, I really have appreciated your input here on this one. This is a, a, it's great getting sort of the Mm -hmm. inside baseball look at what's going on in the the reality of Rockford's world in this episode. My outside, inside (laughs) baseball. Yeah, yeah. I should say I'm not a legal professional in any way, but I have done activist work in the criminal justice around criminal justice reform. Right. And so this is especially in the last like five years or so, mm-hmm. um, the importance and the centrality of grand juries has become really important um, and really on people's radars way more because that's where the decisions about how uh, police who kill civilians, especially unarmed civilians, um, gets decided. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, I'm, I'm quite jaded about, <laughs> about what I expect from grand jury proceedings. Right. And <laughs> one of the interesting developments as far as that's gone is that, especially in officer-involved shootings, there is a, a fairly hard push for them not to be subject to grand jury decisions for indictments and to put it solely in the district attorney or mm. the prosecutor, county prosecutor or whatever, um, to put it in their hands because the grand jury system is so flawed. Mm-hmm. And because you do, um, a lot of the people who would be a grand jurist would be just subject to some of the same expectations about uh, like that character assassination piece and the respect for law enforcement and, and everything, the same dynamics that are, uh, you know, work against Jim and his, uh, his prison record are, are also, you know, threaded through how grand juries are being used right now in those particular cases. It's one of the areas in which much better minds than I are, are trying to um, uh, apply a little more logic and a little less arbitrariness <laughs> to, to that part of the process. So, Well, still relevant today, this, uh, this episode of television yeah. from 1976. That's, that's not a small thing, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's one thing that we've really discovered about the show is not just that some of the narrative stuff is evergreen, uh, but that a lot of the actual drama of what's in the episode is still relevant to things that are happening, even if the details are different. And some of the fashion, which is the most <laughs> shocking part. <laughs> Beth's outfits have been amazing yeah. in this entire episode <laughs> that I think uh, I, I didn't get to say earlier. I thought she looked extremely good on screen without like the Vaseline lens that was often mm, applied yeah. to women in the 70s and 80s on TV. So good job, Beth. I think that's a consistent theme for me. Good job, Beth. Yeah. Yeah. Co-sign that. Beth is a great character. <laughs> there's a lot of really good, I was going to say there's a lot of really good beth episodes. I'm going to say it. There's a lot of really good beth episodes. Yes. Yeah, you can go back in our archive. There's a couple that we've that we specifically were like, we're going to do this Beth episode, but then we she'll be in an episode and we'll end up talking about her a lot because she's just great. Yeah, I think you could produce a clip show called the Beth episodes. <laughs> oh my yeah. god, wouldn't that be the best? That would. <laughs> we just found our new uh, uh, Patreon uh, goal level. Right, if we, we'll, we'll produce the Beth episodes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, that pretty much covers it for me. Yeah. It was, it's partly an acting thing, but I think it is worth keeping in mind for games. Mm-hmm. Um, in all of William Daniels's other roles, he plays very similar characters to Bevins in this episode in that he's a little drunk on power. He has an inflated sense of himself. And in other shows like, you know, in Night yeah. Rider and Insane Elsewhere and stuff like that, it is largely he's not playing it for laughs. Like the character does not intend to be funny, but everybody around him finds it funny mm, that right. he... Mm-hmm considers himself to be the sovereign of his patch yeah. of terrain, you know? And and so there's there's laughter, or at least implicit, like, oh, kind of um, feelings. But the thing about him that's really different in this episode is that he means it. And mm. he does have yeah. the authority to back it up. He's not blustering when he says he can do something. He can do it. Uh, yeah, I think that's what makes him such a, a compelling. I mean, he's the villain, right, uh, of the piece. And that's what makes him so compelling is that he has actual power. Seeing him be so cavalier about what the fallout of that is, I think, in the beginning, and then how it turns personal is really the like the real screw that gets turned in his characterization uh, for me, where he goes from just being like, I'm going to compel this guy to testify and I'm going to treat him as hostile because he's not answering my questions. But you kind of get the sense in the, that very first scene that he would be acting like this with whoever mm-hmm. as it goes on. And Rockford isn't willing to just give in to what he says. He gets more personal and he brings more and more of the power that he actually has to exercise. And you're right. It's not funny at all. No, I was thinking about that in terms of, of characters and stuff that get built into games where, you know, where the players have this expectation that somebody who is, you know, like stuffy and self-important and everything like that, that there's always a, that there's a hitch to it and that mm-hmm. you shouldn't take it as seriously right. as they do. But when that person is in the, like the right situation, instead of being over inflated sense of self is exactly right. Inflated sense of power (laughs) that, that, that that transition or that, that shock to the, to a player or to a reader or whatever um, is really abrupt and Mm -hmm. it messes with our uh, sort of our threat scale um, to encounter Mm -hmm. somebody. Oh shit. No, he can do this. 
it that makes me think like again of that moment when he Jim is just feels like he can he control the situation because Jim's talking and Jim knows how to control a situation when he's talking, and then mm-hmm. he poisons the jury against him by bringing up his his prison record, yeah. and then Jim's like, "You can't do that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Jim's like, "Oh, I do not have control of the situation." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good stuff. Yeah, and he's unaware of how much control Bevins actually has. Right. Like that's a that's a cipher in this too. Not only does he not know what grand juries do or how they work, but also he's he does not know the limits of this dude's power. Mm-hmm. So he's less willing to test it later on. It's awesome as the audience to see it in Beth, but just before it happens, right? Like mm-hmm. we got Beth oh, right. trying mm-hmm. to convey to him you're in trouble, uh, and then to just have Jim behave. I mean, he's 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 got good instincts when he's in trouble. We've seen that when he was in the prison and whatnot. But in this particular case, they were not, you know, helping him out. They were digging his his ditch a little deeper. Jim always has lots to yeah. say. So uh, as, as a character piece, right? Like he can't help right. himself. I'd say the one thing here that I really think I, I could pull from for, for some um, narrative and game use is the like really aggressive scene framing. Mm-hmm. Even more than most Rockford files, it just jumps from the last thing that you need to see to the next thing we need to see for yeah. the story to continue. It just elides so much in between time in the name of saying, here's what's important. And there's just no, no fat on it whatsoever. And uh, especially for, you know, short form fiction or, or one shot games, just being like, what's important. Let's get there. Cause you can still do all the character stuff in the scene. You don't need to set it up with a bunch of stuff. You can do that along with the plot stuff. Right. So this is a good episode for that. Yeah. And it's a good, it's a good way. It escalates so quickly that way. Mm -hmm. And so do the stakes uh, keep escalating uh, like beyond Jim's ability to, to cope with them. And, um, and I think that part of, part of why that's super effective in this episode is because we are dealing with a person who is confused and thrown off and out of their depth in the situation. And that really aggressive framing and escalation uh, keeps you off balance. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good way of sort of replicating that feeling in a viewer. So good stuff. Well, uh, I think we'll we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up here. Jess, is there anything you would like our, our our listeners to know about either activities that you're involved with or uh, the, any web resources that uh, anyone should know about for following up on any of the stuff we've talked about here? Um, I, because I work in the game industry, because I'm a longtime gamer. And, um, but I'm also, uh, working on a lot of, um, justice and equity issues as an activist. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm constantly looking for ways to use games to, I don't think about it as educational, but, um, stories are where empathy builds. You tell somebody your story. It is the, it is the most persuasive tool yeah. you have in your kit. And seeing yourself represented in a story uh, or a piece of your life or something like that is one of the most humanizing things that people can do for each other. And so putting issues or perspectives into games so that people can really try something on that they normally wouldn't do, mm-hmm. I think is an area that could be expanded upon a lot. And I just think gaming is a phenomenal sandbox for that to happen in a safe setting. Yeah. And I 
Totally agree with all of that. Uh, and my understanding is that you're working on a game specifically framed around activism. Um, I have trouble with um, saying that I design games because I have never been the design brain. I am married to a mega design <laughs> brain uh, with Cam. So that's just not a niche I'd ever carved out for myself. I'm like, no, 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 I don't, I don't do design things. I'm not a designer. Uh, but I broke my own rules. I, it is Robin Laws' fault. I just want to say that right up front. Robin! Robin! Robin. <laughs> Envision me you're shaking my fist. But we did a panel at Gen Con last year about activism and gaming, and it was me and Kat Tobin. And, and Robin asked me, what makes you step in front of a car at like a march or something right. like that? And I was like, okay, get ready for the cheesiest cheese that's ever been cheesed. But here it is. I love the people behind me more than I'm afraid of the people in front of me. And then immediately, like, tension track <laughs> popped sure, into my yeah. head. That's how it starts. And um, so I've been working on this game since uh, August called The March. It's a story game. And it's basically letting people put themselves into roles of various kinds of people. Somebody who's just a regular person, but something in the news last night just broke that last straw. And so here they are, don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, none of the people are in leadership in this game, um, but they may have more or less experience as a marker playing that role and reacting to the unfolding and the unexpected changes of a march because it is organic in so many ways and sort mm -hmm. of letting them have that experience so that um, they can explore different perspectives if they are somebody who has an activist background or, you know, does this stuff for important issues to them or somebody who's been afraid to do it and maybe can feel mm -hmm. like, okay, I've gone through like a progression and felt some of these emotions and stuff. So I wouldn't be completely 100% out of my depth if I showed up and just walked in one of these things. So that's my project. I, I love that. I think that's great. Not just because uh, you're thinking of, of stealing some some mechanics I've developed in the past for it. It's super uh, interesting how much overlap. Yeah. yeah. Which is very gratifying. But also, also that idea of it's not necessarily about people in leadership. It's about the people choosing to take action. Right. Uh, it's very compelling to me because so many games are about people who are right. leaders, right, in whatever it is. Uh, so that's very cool. If uh, someone wanted to see what was happening with that. Uh. <laughs> so there's uh, my blog is weird and about a lot of different things. But your blog is great. <laughs> Let me go ahead and say if you're interested in a deep bench of uh, writing about activism and specific issues and personal experiences and a lot of very illuminating uh, things, I would say your blog is a great place to start. Gosh, thanks. That's really great. But I am uh, found way too often at Prof Banks, like Professor Banks on Twitter. And that's probably the best place to ask me about these things. But otherwise, yeah, go read the blog. Maybe I'll put something up about the game. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah. ProfBanks.com, to be clear, is that blog. And then, as you said, uh, at Prof Banks on Twitter, go follow Jess. Uh, see all the great things that, that she's doing. I do write social media for Atlas Games, where I work. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think this was a super, a super fun and uh, educational dive into this particular episode. It's such a great match. Yeah. So good work, Epi, <laughs> in making the connection happen. Yes, thank you. This was really fantastic, and I loved it. And uh, yeah, just let me know so I can order the DVDs from the library. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Epi, do you have any final thoughts before we round this out? Uh, no, I think we've, we've, we've covered quite a bit. Um, I'm uh, just very, very pleased with this episode. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. I found it delightful, so I'm really glad to. This was a fantastic dive into, I think, one of one of the most standout episodes in my mind uh, of the Rockford Files. So, again, super glad <laughs> that we got to really get into it with uh, with our outside inside voice, if you will. You know, you know how we do. We will be back next time to talk about another episode of the Rockford Files.